my name is Violet and I'm obsessed with all things personal development. As a life, health, wellness, and meditation coach, I love empowering you through difficult seasons of life so you can venture and live a life you truly love. Join me as I cover topics on health and wellness, money, business, work, great relationships, not so great relationships, love, loss, family, achieving those beautiful goals, creating balance in life, growth, and so much more. Consider this your one stop on a shop for a little happy hour blended with your personal school of life. Grab a drink, get cozy, and get ready to be challenged and inspired while you learn. This is the Venture Love Podcast. I'm so excited and honored to have this very special guest on the Venture Love podcast. For our listeners, you'll definitely want to check Jessica Smith Bobadilla out. Jessica is an immigration and human rights lawyer, a law professor, a mama, nutritious fitness and wellness enthusiast, and also the host of the I Am Attorney Jessica podcast. I'm happy and so excited to have you on my podcast. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Violet. Of course, of course. So first off, you have such an impressive, incredible background. Um, and I know there's a ton that I want to learn from you and discuss, but I thought today discussing immigration would be a really incredible topic uh, to discuss because it's so relevant for so many people, um, including myself. So if you think about it, I, you know, there are so many immigrants, we're all immigrants basically living in the U.S. So this episode will be relevant to so many. Um, personally, my parents immigrated here from Nicaragua due to the Sandinista War in the late 80s. I was born in Honduras, came here. Um, we lived in LA when I was almost two, and then we settled in SF. So I've been here my whole life. Um, but my parents had, you know, a very personal experience with it. And I know I don't remember a ton, but I also grew up listening to so many stories that it's impossible to forget, you know, based off of what I learned from my parents and family members. So can I ask you what drew you to this to this career? It's an incredible career. So what drew you to this career? Yeah, of course. Um, so it is something that I've realized through my work touches so many people's lives and even people that sometimes at the beginning of their lives, maybe their families had been in the United States for generations, but sometimes they'll encounter someone in their work or their life or in their personal life and realize what a big issue the immigration issue is. For me, the, the draw to it was that when I was kind of choosing, you know, when they tell you about fifth or sixth grade to choose a career or a profession that you may be interested in, to me, law was something that I was drawn to. As I got further in my studies in both college and then eventually in law school, I kind of figured out that I was most interested in things that related to human rights, constitutional law, civil rights, immigration, international law. So I had pursued work opportunities in a variety of those areas. And then after law school and after I finished a master's on the East Coast, I had had the ability to work abroad for one of the UN agencies. And even though I really enjoyed that opportunity, I could kind of see that that wasn't going to be a long-term career path that would really also allow me with any ease to be a mother and also be relatively close to my family who are based at that point, we're almost all based in central California and, and some spread between Northern and Southern California. But um, I, you know, figured out that that would be a really difficult combination, at least in the early stages of my career. So kind of just in applying to different law jobs, I, I started working in New York when I was still living there at an immigration firm actually on Wall Street. So I got exposure early on to both business immigration and then also to asylum and eventually ended up making my way back to where I was from, which was Fresno, California, and working for someone who was the largest practitioner kind of in central California and a, and a certified specialist and immigration law. So that was kind of the path before I started my own practice in 2007. That's so incredible. I love that you mentioned that you you knew that this is something you wanted to do ever since you were a little girl. You said fifth grade. That's incredible. 
Yeah, at least the attorney field. I wasn't really, my family, like yours, had an immigrant history that was complex. Um, my dad's parents were both born in the Ottoman Empire, what's the former Ottoman Empire. They were born in what's now Eastern Turkey. They're both ethnic Armenian Christians, and they fled um, due to the events that later are finally referred to as the Armenian Genocide collectively. And my dad's family actually ended up in Mexico uh, my mom's family had more kind of traditional immigrant roots, um, being Sicilian, Italian, and Irish. So they more more came for you know a lot of the reasons that a lot of European immigrants came, which was you know economic poverty in Europe and economic opportunity in the states. But my dad's family, part of my draw, I think, to human rights law and to uh, asylum was that my grandparents actually ended up in the United States before there was asylum law. So because that came up later after World War II, that body of law developed. So technically, they were refugees really before there were refugees. And in my grandmother's family's case, they settled in Mexico and some of my family still lives there. So stayed there, you know, married there, made roots in Mexico. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, I see so many commonalities within, um, and the stories I think are just so interesting. I can only imagine what your, your, your family, your grandparents encountered coming here, especially at that time, um, and what they faced. Yeah. So I think this is such a great conversation. I'm really happy that you're open and making the time to chat with me today and educate, you know, the listeners. So I'd love to first off, just dedicate this episode to anyone who has faced difficulty, racism, financial ruin, because many people who immigrate, if not all, face this. It's a reality. It's it's loss. It's heartbreak of separation while immigrating to the U.S. And there are countless people facing such devastating situations day in and day out. And I know, I don't know, not even half of it. I am, you know, given your close involvement, education and experience in this field, um, could you share your personal take on the current immigration system? And I know that's a very loaded question, but what comes up for you when I ask you that? Well, you know, I think that in some areas of practice, legal practice, other lawyers that I talk to that have been practicing 20 years, mm -hmm. it hasn't really been a different career or a different application of rules every few years. But for me, having been through now um, four administrations, every administration almost the body of law, the body of law doesn't technically change. So certain people are still eligible, but things that are more seen as political by different interest groups or something like, for example, DACA, which is deferred action for childhood arrivals, which president Obama rolled out to try to give undocumented students a path forward or asylum is seen as very political, you know, given that people show up at our borders seeking it it's almost like a different career every few years. So I think that's what makes it hard. I think people think that, you know, the, the experience is the same, you know, and I think it is for uh, some other lawyers more from year to year, pretty consistent in the rules that they're uh, operating under and applying um, in immigration, both because of a lot of new precedents, because, you know, it is something where people lose an asylum case and maybe they're afraid to really afraid to go back. They keep appealing, you know, all the way to the federal court and the federal courts, including the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, do announce a lot of decisions surrounding, you know, those issues. So it's a really um, rapidly evolving body of law. And I think that that's what makes it hard to just kind of encapsulate it. Right now, I think we're feeling the pull of the past administration, the Trump administration, which, you know, this isn't a judgment, but it was very restrictionist, you know, in terms of not really encouraging immigration, even things that were former President Trump has a lot of business ties abroad. One would think that given the statements he made about, you know, international business and trade that he would have made business immigration easier. That also didn't really become easier, you know, for uh, my professional clients or people that are in that boat. So I think right now we're really facing kind of uh, something that's been building for years and has always been part of our struggle as Americans as to what, how we define ourselves and how we are going to either encourage people to come here and for what reasons or stop people from coming here, limit people from coming here and for what reasons. And I think that is still, because that is still an unsolved question in the American 
um, psychology and mind, I think that the law to some degree and all the shifts reflect that kind of identity crisis that we have, right? We are a nation of immigrants, but there are strong voices in this country that also want to severely limit that for new people. And not all of those are people that are fourth generation, fifth generation Americans. I mean, we see voices in Latin and other communities that really want to limit immigration too, right? And other immigrant communities. And so uh, it's a tough area to kind of encapsulate, but I'm happy to try to answer any questions that may, you know, kind of clarify that. I can just imagine, I mean, when my parents came here, you know, it was in the late 80s and it was definitely a struggle. And I I can only imagine that it's just gotten... And my parents did all the things that they needed to do to set us up for success in um, ensuring that we became U.S. citizens. My little sister was born here, but, you know, for myself and my parents and doing all those things. So I can just imagine how much more challenging, I, like you said, it's got to change. It, it must be changing so much with every administration. So are you okay with me asking you scenario? Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Just for people that might be experiencing um, these events and these things in their life that it might be relevant to them. So the first one I wanted to ask, and and I've named these characters, Mm -hmm. Um, let's just say um, I was born in Honduras and I don't have any uh, family there, but, uh, you know, I'm curious um, based off of your experience. So let's just say there's a single mother, let's call her Patricia. She lives in Honduras and is thinking of heading for the border to enter the U.S., right? She's her all the things others have said that this is a land of opportunities and there's great work, great money. She can send money back home to her family. So she's sold all her belongings. She's, she's got a little bit of cash. She's ready to leave, but she's facing that internal battle that so many face, right? It's do I stay in misery, right? In a country and economy that does not help or support me, or do I go potentially um, do I go and potentially provide my children with a better life, you know, in the U.S.? So what could you recommend to someone um, like Patricia in this situation? I mean, I can imagine there's so much to consider, but what would be maybe the first few things that come up for you that you would suggest to someone in this situation? Well, I think what a lot of people don't know or don't totally understand about the law, the asylum and immigration law is that if Patricia just showed up to a border and said she wanted a better life, you know, for economic reasons or lack of work in Honduras, she would not be able to get in. And even there would really be nothing unless she found out that some of her family were here and had attained, you know, something, and that would have to be close family. And even then, if it was like brother or sister, it could take years just to get to a point where she could process. If she somehow had fear and Honduras, um, a lot of people don't know this actually has been rated by the United Nations and other um, human rights bodies as the most dangerous country for women in the world. I've people, read that. Yeah. You know, often because of associations with different things assume that it must be like Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, but actually Honduras has consistently ranked um, in certain studies as being the highest rates of femicide of domestic violence with um, what we call in human rights law impunity, which means really no consequences, you know, for the abuser, no, no one to go to literally, you know, in many cases to get that solved. So if there were factors like that, in many cases, particularly with single women in countries like Honduras, when I do the intake, I'll ask them what they would like help with. And sometimes they'll say, well, I want to go to the United States to work. And then in really unpacking why they're trying to leave the country of origin, in many cases, there is something that's asylum related there, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they were sexually assaulted and then abused and no one did anything about that. And they know that as a single woman, you know, depending that the the odds of that happening are very high, you know, again, just given the environment and sometimes even I've heard people say this, and I think it's true. And I think this has even played out in the United States with certain sexual assault survivors and domestic violence victims, given the statistics, is that sometimes people know you've been victimized and kind of go towards you. You know, I I think, you know, it's bad people, abusers. And then other times it may be something internally psychological that causes someone subconsciously to get 
hooked up with someone else that does the same thing. And obviously in a society where it's not punished conduct, really, you know, at the end of the day, it's easy to find someone like that. It's probably easier to find someone like that than someone that is going to, um, to not do that. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of layers to it where sometimes the stated reason that the person gives is only one reason. And a lot of times too, obviously with, um, sexual assault, with rape, with uh, child abuse, um, different types of child abuse, there's a lot of shame in discussing it. So you don't really think, you know, if you're a young woman like Patricia or a woman, you don't really want to go up to an agent, talk through an interpreter in some cases and tell them you were raped as a child or tell them that you are continually abused um, and that no one's really doing anything about it, you know? So I think that in Patricia's case, if the statistics that I've experienced with Honduran women would repeat, there would probably be more there where she may have be able to present herself at a border and present a claim for asylum and then go through a process, um, assuming that they found sufficient grounds and paroled her in for further uh, proceedings. Um, but if it was, if she insisted it was just pure economics, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, there's no real path in, you know, for most people if it's just to seek a better life and you don't either have, you're not either in some kind of a profession that we could recruit people from abroad, like nursing, or, um, or you don't have a family member that could somehow petition for you, even if it takes longer. It's so devastating and um, scary and sad um, and unfortunate um, that so many are facing this. You know, I, I, um, I had heard, awful, terrible things about Honduras being born there. And I, I think sometimes that if my family hadn't left, where would I be today? You know, um, so I'm so grateful for the sacrifices my parents did to get me here. But um, ah, that I was just going to mention the same thing you did. There are so many layers of this. And it, it sounds like based off of what you're saying that not that they favoritize this, but they would uh, prioritize an abused person versus someone who's just coming here for economic reasons. They, that has been one basis for asylum. But the other interesting thing is that there was a precedent case that was actually argued by, or um, the precedent was set by actually a, a professor at the law school that I went to. It was called Matter of RA. And it was about um, a Guatemalan woman who had been subjected to kind of continual domestic violence, could not leave her abuser, um, you know, the country conditions and the human rights indicators being what they were for Guatemala and for domestic violence uh, survivors. Um, a court found at some point, there was a long litigation history of this case, but a court found that she did qualify for asylum. Um, usually asylum has to be like um, certain. So it has to, the other thing that people don't understand, and this is heartbreaking in many cases, because you could literally have had your whole family like executed, you know, but it wouldn't necessarily be asylum if we can't link it to something bigger. So in one case that I um, actually prevailed on and the family is, uh, you know, um, safe and here the father and oldest brother had been killed um, in Mexico, actually. And they didn't quite, they knew it was, you know, they named the cartel and, and everything by the style and, and the dress and the car and everything. But the younger siblings and the mother didn't really know what that was related to. So I had to keep digging, but it turned out that the father and brother were involved in some type of a land uh, collective or reform thing that the cartel opposed. So we were able with as much information we had as to present it as to political. And that was enough at least to grant them safety. But the other problem is if they, at first, you know, they just were given the basics, like they were executed. We don't know. They just came after them. Well, that's not enough because it doesn't fall within something political race. There's actually boxes on the asylum application, race, religion, uh, political opinion, particular social groups. So Women were a particular social, like Guatemalan women were continued are um, yeah, a particular social group. What's tricky about it is that you also can't link the persecution to the social group. So you can't really say Guatemalan survivors of domestic violence because that's the persecution is in the group. 
So women as a social group or, you know, or women that have been abused as a social group who couldn't leave their abusers has actually been tough because they'd say the government would say, and the government said on these appeals, including in that Guatemalan case matter of RA, well, it's not all Guatemalan women. Not every woman in Guatemala is being subjected to domestic violence that she can't leave. So then you can't put the persecution in the group in many cases, you know, as you're defining it as the attorney or as the applicant. So gender has been tough, you know, to define as a social group. We continue to make the arguments and we continue to try to put them forward for domestic violence survivors. Um, but it's tough because many of the groups that we define get shot down. You know, another that one of my colleagues, uh, Bruce, uh, put forward that has worked in certain cases is women of a certain origin as property. So in certain societies, you know, women are viewed as property and just even things we'd have to tie in in those cases, both sometimes a country expert, which is expensive. You know, it's usually a professor that takes time to look at the case and write a report and be available for testimony of the day of the hearing. Um, Sometimes we have to tie in, really dig out what the abuser said to them and prove that the abuser saw them as their property, you know, not just as a partner or as a spouse or whatever the situation or a girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, whatever the situation was, it's an uphill battle because the law is also more restrictive than people think, you know, I've had people shocked that it wasn't enough to, um, that someone's whole family was executed, you know, when they were nearby and they literally took off. And I've seen cases like that. If they don't know why it's dismissed as crime. Mm-hmm. And crime isn't asylum. That's devastating. That's so devastating, um, which is why the world needs you. <laughs> you know, oh, such incredible work helping so many people out. Um, and I'm just learning so much just listening to you. I have, um, and just put, as you were mentioning, the family, the the person that lost her entire family. I mean, you've got to just be living. I can only put myself in those shoes for a moment because it's got to you're living in terror every day, not knowing, you know, if you're safe, if you're not, I mean, it's gotta be, it's just devastating. And sometimes too, Violet, you get um, cases where, uh, I mean, I've had a variety of uh, jurisdictions, a variety of judges, you know, in 20 years. And I've had cases where I remember once a government attorney said on cross-examination to a male client, don't you think that your wife had psychological problems before she was sexually assaulted? And, you know, I objected, of course, but like you do have people in the system that are really, you know, sensitive and that even if they can't grant something, they're like, you know, I'm so sorry, this doesn't fit. I can't, you know, agree to a grant or the judge will even say that we're really sorry about what happened, but I have to fit it within certain confines or I'll be reversed if the government appeals, you know, but we've all, I've also had people say, like, I did have a Central American woman whose whole family was killed literally when she was getting water at the river. She was a young woman. She took off, she saw them there and she took off, um, got to the U S border and crossed with no shoes. I mean, like literally, and, um, judge and the government attorney both questioned that she didn't know what time it was that her testimony about um the time even though she said she didn't have they didn't even have shoes she didn't have a watch she didn't have a clock she was basing it off the the way the sun looked off the river as to what time it was and because she changed that by a few hours they said she was lying i don't know if it's western because latinos are western you know they're not eastern peoples um at least in recent history so i don't know if western is the right word but it's very american modern, you know, we're sitting in downtown San Francisco in this hearing. Um, it's not the way that people judge time in rural Guatemala in the eighties for sure when she took off. Right. And so it's also very, um, loaded with like a lot of cultural assumptions, you know, about when someone is telling the truth and when someone is lying and how they're gauging things like time or the time of day or things like that. And so, um, and another thing that was said in that case, even though, even if they, they said, even if they assume that she, you know, did see her whole family murdered and took off, why did she think that they were looking for her? And I, and I, the government attorney asked that and I objected and I said, 
um, would you really like go back if, you know, you see your whole family murdered, would any logical human being say, gee, let me go back to the house and see if they're interested in me? Like, why would you uh, ever go back if you saw your whole family murdered when you were a few hundred feet away? Like, so some of the things are really just obscene, you know, and I feel like those things, hopefully through, you know, litigation advocacy from groups like ACLU and other groups that, you know, that push on the different standards. I mean, we're never going to totally weed that out of the system, but I've noticed it's become less in most cases in the last few years. You know, I think that, you know, the San Francisco court where I practice most of my, my cases are in the San Francisco court has also been a lot um, less of that than other jurisdictions that I've been in. But that is, there is something like that in the system. And what I don't really understand is we may not be able to grant everyone everything, but I don't think we should be degrading people. And in many cases, I feel that there is a knowledge that these people did suffer something, whether it falls within the right precedent or the right box is a whole different, is a legitimate question, right? Can the judge or the government grant this person something under the law? That's their job is to figure out yes or no. Sometimes when it gets very degrading, you know, and in that case, the judge is now gone, you know, um, he has retired. And so I was happy about that. Um, actually the government attorney and, and I have had many cases together and he's kind of become a little bit like kinder, gentler over the years, which is interesting to me, like not hundred percent, but definite big improvement that I saw in those days, you know? So good. I, um, I appreciate you mentioning that because obviously I don't have the exposure you do and the, the experiences. And I think it's, it's so important to bring that human element to the work that you do. And regardless of what happened or what time of day it was, I mean, that's so ridiculous. Treating people with respect is, it should be the norm, but obviously you're, as you're stating, it's, it's getting better, but it's just not where it should be quite yet. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think the, the, the norms are changing and we'll probably see more um, restrictions on in the immigration system, not on what people can ask. And obviously if these were people with, a, you know, a three page rap sheet, I mean, but this, that was not the case. You know, these are people that at that point were here a long time, um, you know, and it just was very clear that they, they weren't up to anything bad. So like, why treat them that way? I could understand if it was someone that had lied to the government on so many occasions and they knew that and they were trying to weed out what this was really about, you know, then maybe you could say more aggressive tactics are justified or if the person, you know, has real serious criminal history and could be a threat if they're granted something, but that's not the case. It just seems cruel, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I have another scenario, um, here let's see so i guess now if we're shifting a little bit let's now consider um two immigrants and i'll use the word illegal but if there's a better term i'm still learning here i think i think um undocumented is undocumented. Um, more yeah like what we're trying to move towards but you know i understand that people use the term illegal um mm -hmm. i just think that so Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor has been uh, pushing the whole court not to use the term illegal anymore and to, to use the term um, either undo undocumented. Yeah. To yes, I, I appreciate you telling me that because it's illegal is the word I heard growing up all the time. And I think all of us, yeah, all of us are still, yeah. Mm -hmm. Undocumented. So let's now consider two undocumented um, immigrants living, let's just say in Los Angeles, um, let's say they were able to maybe sneak into the U.S. Uh, years ago, and now they have a U.S.-born baby. Um, what threat do they face in this day? And more importantly, how can they protect themselves from deportation and also keep their babies safe? I know, once again, this is a very loaded question, but um, with tons of layers, but what comes up if a client comes to you in this kind of predicament or situation? So it's tough because um, in most cases where people, you know, are, are not refugees, so they have no fear of returning to their home country. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd first ask what country they're from. And sometimes um, I have had cases where people had entered a long time ago, but maybe there was then 
like a civil war in their country, like something like what happened in Ukraine or what happened, you know, has developed in Venezuela or other places where there was kind of, even if not a civil war, a rapid change in the country conditions and the human rights indicators, right? So if that were the case, sometimes you can, and especially if there was something particular to the person's situation tied to that, like maybe they had left their country, you know, years ago, or a few years ago, but then something extra happened in the last six months. And hopefully it's recent because if you are going to claim asylum and you're going to claim a change in circumstances or country conditions, it has to be pretty recent. You know, you can't then sit on your hands for another two years before you file. Um, but I would first ask questions about that to be sure that they're, if they're coming to me, that they're not coming forward now because there is some additional pressure or urgency where they know they can't go back all of a sudden, you know, sometimes there's something like that going on and they don't tell you that, um, just having a child here contrary to popular belief and Fox news does not qualify people for a green card does not qualify them for, you know, to receive the benefits that are commonly promoted. Um, you know, there is, of course, for all U.S. citizen children, there is some benefit in terms of if people are very low income, they can get some food stamps and other things for the family. But um, that's pretty limited. And the main thing that I'd also want to know is if they had been here 10 years and if there was any illness or disability of the baby, because, you um, if there is, and the people have been here 10 years, um, it's a little tricky because we used to be able to just ask ICE and USCIS to put these people into a court process where they could, if the if all the requirements were met, they could cancel their removal. Now the person either has to claim asylum first and then get before a judge and claim this alternate form of relief, or they have to um, somehow, if they come into contact with ICE, sometimes ICE will write up the documents, you know, but that's kind of like more or less they have to be arrested by ICE, which usually isn't the best, you know, scenario. Apart from that, if they didn't have any family in the United States and no old filings, if they didn't have a, a child that was ill and they had 10 years here in clean history, a uh, U.S. citizen child, that is, um, and they didn't... Um, qualify or want to claim asylum, there's really not much. And I would probably recommend that they, if they ever had had contact coming into the country with border officials, that we conduct a background check to know what their history was exactly, you know, in terms of the immigration history. And then other than that, that they probably just try to keep in touch and wait for some type of immigration reform to see if things shift, you know, nationally, if they were for some reason subject to ICE enforcement, which in most cases is highly unlikely under any administration, if the people are not being arrested, you know, most people that are handed over now, sometimes that's an arrest where something's dismissed, you know, so just to be fair, it's not all people that ICE goes out to get that are hardened, you know, criminals. Sometimes I've had people in a car with the driver and the driver had had a little too much to drink and they take everyone in and not as much in San Francisco, but in Fresno and places like that, there has been, um, and this has been controversial, but the Fresno County Sheriff's Office had ICE in the jail. So not even people that were convicted, but people that were there for a night because they're trying to sort out whether they're going to be charged or whether the driver, you know, if there was some crime committed, um, many of them were put into proceedings, you know, because they were there in the jail and ICE was there. Um, so, um, you know, so it, it's kind of, a little tough because there are situations where people don't do anything necessarily wrong and get into proceedings. I, I always tell everyone, if you're not a hundred percent sure you want to live in your home country, if you're afraid of anything, then you need to in detail, tell them what you're afraid of in your home country and they should not remove you or you have a hearing. Many people get removed because they get taken into custody and either they decide or ICE convinces them to sign a document that they're just going to go and relinquish their right to a hearing. So I always tell people, you know, and there's maybe a few exceptions. If people have been previously removed, they have a few less rights if they had were deported and then came back. But in almost all cases, even that group, they at least have the right to say, I'd like to see a judge. I don't want to sign to go back. You know, if they're afraid, I have a fear of X, Y, Z, my former partner, my you know, this, this political group, whatever, you know, it might be. 
tell everyone I consult with, you know, to also mention that they've consulted with me and that they plan to hire me now that there's something more concrete on the table. So I tell them, just tell them I am your attorney because we have consulted now. We have some type of attorney client relationship, and then we can work out the details um, if you decide to, to try to pursue something. Because the problem is, as many times when someone's in custody, like I would be completely shell shocked. You know, I wouldn't know what to do, what to say if they were telling me to sign something. And, you know, I have been on the phone in encounters with Border Patrol and ICE, and I've been in encounters where if I hadn't been doing this for 20 years, I would have been completely shaking in my boots and I just would have done exactly what the people said, you know? So I tell them, I don't care if they yell and I have to tell people like, you got to be prepared for this. I don't care if they yell at you. I don't tell if they tell you that everything I'm telling you is false, that you're going to be detained a long time. They also tell people commonly that if they go, they can just come back, yeah. which I think they mean legally eventually like through a US, but that would be like, 10, 20 years in many cases, you know, they, they try to either, there's kind of like a good cop, bad cop thing they do. So sometimes there's two of them and one of them's trying to convince and the other one's kind of pressuring. In other cases, they'll uh, just have one person either pressuring or acting like they're giving them advice. And the most important thing that people know too, is that the U.S. government is not your lawyer. They're not legal counsel. In many cases, the people that you're interfacing with, either at the front desk at a USCIS office or at ICE, may not even have much beyond, you know, a high school education, which is nothing to be ashamed of, but is not anything that you would want to digest the full body of law and policy that is immigration law and mm -hmm. advise you. And in the case of ICE and the Border Patrol, also, they have a vested interest in getting or to getting you out of the country if you're undocumented as soon as possible. I mean, if you're an ICE agent or a border, you know, an ICE agent meeting on the enforcement side, because ICE does a lot of different things, you know, but assuming on the enforcement side for immigration or a border patrol customs and border protection agent, and you're never removing anyone, then you're failing. The point of that job is to effectuate removal operations, you know? So, it's just important that people know that the official is not there to advise you and your family as to your best interest. They may be telling you what the immigration law says, but that could play out very differently for you based on your history or based on the specifics of your situation. So if someone is in, I've seen a few documentaries where just like you said, they have a few people or multiple people playing the good cop, the bad cop, and the person there is being in some ways, I don't know if manipulated is the right word, but steered towards one way um, into signing documents, into doing something that they might not feel comfortable doing. If someone finds themselves in this situation um, undocumented, what, I mean, are you recommending that they just immediately stay quiet, not say anything, ask for a public defense attorney? Like what would be like the first? So, yeah. And the other problem is there's no public defender type attorney in immigration. It's all private counsel and not, and the few nonprofits, you know, that are underfunded. Um, so I recommend that people say these two things. I don't recommend that they go silent unless it gets very, tense, 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 you know, um, where they just feel like they're being threatened almost. But I recommend that they just keep saying these things. Um, I'd like to see an immigration judge. Um, I'm not going, I do not want to sign anything that says that I'll go out of the country. Um, my attorney is, and if they've consulted with an attorney, of course, you know, be sure that the attorney's comfortable and says, yeah, you can mention that. And then these are the steps after if that ever happens, you know, which is what I do with the, my clients, you know? Um, and I have, you know, I think it's also legitimate because I have charged in almost every case a consultation fee, unless we've waived it, you know, through funds that we kind of set aside for very sympathetic cases. So I think there's fully an attorney client relationship. The bar associations all say that, the consultation phase does establish an attorney-client relationship. I tell people to say that I am their attorney and that they'd like to now hire me for this space that they're now in, which they weren't in. And I tell them, you're going to take your things. So you need to know my full name. 
and know my number, my office number, you know, by heart, because sometimes the ICE officer will say, well, who's your attorney? And if they don't know, then they'll try to humiliate them. Or if they just say, you know, Jessica or something, you know, then they'll say, well, you know, she's not your attorney if you don't. So I say, you need to know my full name and number and keep saying I'm your attorney and keep saying you want to see a judge and just say that. And I said, don't be disrespectful. Don't be rude. Even if they're rude, you just keep saying, I, please, I need to see a judge and I'll, I can only sign things. And I said, then if they give you papers and you're not sure what you're signing, then just tell them you're going to decline to sign. But you know, that you would like the papers provided to you saying you declined to sign and that you did want to see a judge because I, I have people, you know, in my client base that can't sometimes read Spanish that well, either, either because they're indigenous, they're Mixteco or Triqui or, um, you know, a lot of different, um, indigenous groups. And, uh, they may not even really be very literate in Spanish, you know, even if that's their native, um, I've had people from other national origin that were detained that might've spoke enough English to walk, to talk in a store to customers or to be a truck driver and, you know, interface at truck stops to get gas and the truck wash, but they couldn't, you know what I mean? Like really communicate to the degree that, you know, they needed to, to understand a full detention and things like that. Um, usually by the time people can get a trucking license, they have to have a little more English skills, but not always, you know, because usually by then they, they, they've been here a while or have some kind of permit or license, but, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of different situations. So I just really recommend that people, uh, are respectful and just try to ask for the documents to get into court. And, um, I, once the agency knows there is an attorney involved, I feel like, or that the person has consulted with an attorney, I feel like the chances of anything um, too unusual happening go down exponentially. And in fact, um, they've said that some of my clients that have come back have said that, um, <laughs> I don't know, like the ICE agents laugh and say that I, I'm giving them a hard time because I tell people, if you don't know what you're signing, don't sign it. And I guess that creates systemic problems for them. The problem is if I tell the people, if you're sure you're signing for proceedings then sign it, if you're not sure for some reason, I'm not there. So I can't tell you what you're signing, then just respectfully decline to sign it, you know? So. I mean, but that's great that you're advocating for them. You're, you're educating these people and anyone listening that might be in that situation where they're undocumented and if that ever does happen, they know what steps to take and what not to do, what to do. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I would um, summarize that. And I also want to say that I think that in terms of government agents, there's, there's a wide range, you know, there's a wide range of, of situations. Um, I deal with some regularly that I think are really, um, you know, fair. I mean, they can't always do exactly what, you know, I ask, but they're very fair. They're very, try to be as responsive as they can and to consider different situations, depending what guidance they're, you know, because depending what administration under Trump, they weren't really allowed to do much that was, you know, discretionary or would, you know, possibly help people that were deserving. Uh, but, you know, I think that there's, there's kind of a full spectrum too. And I, either see that people really want to villainize, you know, ICE and the border patrol or act like they're saving all of us. And I think it's just like, just like every, just like immigrants, there's everyone, there's people that, you know, probably need to be weeded out in different ways. And there's people that are doing a great job and trying their best to execute the law, but also to be compassionate and human when they can, you know, when the, depends how compassionate and human the administration is too, <laughs> sometimes. Thank you for mentioning that. I think that's important to recognize. I think, you know, you hear so many different spectrums and I think sometimes, um, a lot of Latinos or people of color are bunched into the a really horrible bucket. I mean, you you hear it all the time that they're the the rapists and the the this and the that, and it's just it's very it's a very ignorant um, statement to put everyone in that one tiny box where it's just it's not fair, it's not kind, it's not true. You know, I, I don't think the statistics bear that those statements out either. And I have to say, having sometimes, you know, when things are busier, um, consulted with up to, you know, 
seven to 10 Mexican families a day or Latino families a day. I don't know where the murders and rapists are. I guess they're not going to California. I don't know. It's, I haven't seen but a few people with over the years with murders and rapists uh, with murder or rape, uh, even allegations. And, um, and in some cases, those were, you know, things that were whatever it was self-defense or it was dismissed um, if it was murder. And I've seen very few, you know, rapists um, over the years. So I'm a little bit puzzled where these people are. Maybe they're not coming to me, but maybe they're a political fiction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my, one of my last questions is um, now, I guess, for the, the U.S. citizen who's listening to this episode and feeling maybe helpless with the situation, um, what are, you know, ways that we can help now um, or what can we do or what do you recommend that we not do if, if, if that's someone that is coming to you saying like, hey, I'm feeling frustrated, I, w- I want to help, I don't know where to begin, is there, you know something I can do? Well, sometimes there's, um, so there is a program that the Biden administration is rolling out where, and they kind of started this off with the Ukrainian, um, you know, parolees or refugees where a U.S. citizen or U.S. citizen family can fill out certain documents to be the financial sponsor for that family. Um, there is some obligation that comes with it. So if the family were to go on public assistance, um, before attaining a more permanent status or for up to 10 years after the contract is signed, technically the government could in some cases come after the sponsor and bill the sponsor. So there's some obligation and, and, you know, technicality to it. Um, But so that's one thing. And I've heard that they're rolling out more broad programs for U.S. citizen families to sponsor refugee families in terms of the financial. Um, It's a pilot program right now. So I don't know how they're implementing it, or if it's even really in effect yet, but they can look out for that as a way to help. There's also um, sometimes cases that I get involved in that um, are very sympathetic. And sometimes um, we uh, can go to um, Congress people and actually ask them to get involved um, in some rare cases. And I have had cases like this they, um, the Congress people can sponsor like a private bill or a private piece of legislation to stop the deportation of certain people. It's that's very rare. And it's happened. I've seen two cases in my 20 year career and the person can basically, or the family can basically not have anything like on the record. So even, you know, anything beyond like a traffic ticket that's paid off. So even something, you know, silly that might've been, you know, years ago, like if the person had a DUI or something, probably not going to work, you know, for that type of thing. Uh, Those though are kind of one in a million, but the ones that I've seen granted many times, there was significant effort of U.S. citizens to ask the Congress person in their district to sponsor this or to help the person. There's also um, sometimes uh, the ability in other cases that wouldn't be a private bill to ask a local congressman or representative's office to get involved and to try to push for um, like uh, the the congressperson's immigration representative to kind of, you know, inquire or push USCIS on a certain case. So maybe there's a real heartbreaking situation where someone's, you know, stuck far away from someone um, and there's a need to try to get someone into the country um, sometimes the congressional people can play a role in that. Um, and so that's obviously there, you know, while they're concerned about immigrants, the U.S. citizen constituents in their district are who votes for them and can contribute, right? So a fund, so that's sometimes um, helpful. Um, I think beyond that, just really um, when things come up, whether it's exit polls after voting or um different candidates that propose different things about immigration. I think like really calling their offices and either expressing support, even if you're not in their district or um, expressing opposition, if it's something that's very harmful, you know, Um, and also um, just trying to, when things about immigration reform come up, um, really trying to urge your Congress people and call, you know, call, email the White House 
and really encourage things that are allowing more pathways for immigrants, if that's what they support, um, or um, expressing opposition when things are negative. Mm -hmm. That's so helpful. This is such a great list. This was such a great episode. I I, I love speaking with you and learning from you. Um, yeah, you have a world of knowledge. I feel like I can have a million more episodes to, to ask a million more questions, but thank you so, so much. And one final, final question I like to ask all of the guests on my um, podcast is what does it mean to venture a life that you love? Well, um, I think that to venture a life that you love is to venture a life that has purpose and it's not always going to be easy um, or it's not always going to be fun every day. But I think when you look at your entire life, um, it will have purpose and joy within those uh, meaningful moments and with other, other moments, right, that maybe aren't so meaningful, but that are um, relaxing or, um, or fun. Um, so I think that um, a that that probably for me is driven by a sense of purpose. I love it. That was beautiful. Thank you so, so much. And for anyone who is interested in um, speaking with you or potentially working with you, how can people connect and find you? Yeah. So on Instagram, um, I'm at JES318 or also at I am Attorney Jessica. Um, and if you'd like to listen to our, my podcast, it's I am Attorney Jessica a migration and human rights for all it's on apple spotify and stitcher currently and um we're trying to roll out some episodes in spanish but it's just a lot to just keep it going as you know i get it things recorded even in one language so um and you could also contact my firm um which is uh our website is attorneyjessica.com for people that speak spanish if you put in the domain name Abogada Jessica or Abogada Jessica, with spell, as spelled in Spanish, the same. It, I own all those domains because I didn't want another attorney, Jessica, to take my domain in English or Spanish. So it'll direct you to our site. And my staff is bilingual. Beautiful. Incredible. I'm so happy that you are here. I'm so grateful for you um, dedicating your time and your energy to educate everyone listening and whoever will watch this um, video as well. So Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Violet. Thank you for having me. This is a wonderful talk. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning into the Venture Love Podcast. If you love this episode as much as I did, make sure to rate and subscribe so you never miss a future episode. And if you want to continue the conversation and share your biggest takeaways, I would love to hear from you. Yes, you. Head on over to my Instagram at violet underscore ventures to share your favorite part, grab a freebie, learn about my latest offerings, or check out my latest blog. I can't wait to connect and hear from you. This is Violet, and I'll see you next time on the Venture Love Podcast.